It's a great honor to be joined today by Dr. Mazarin Banaji. She is the Richard Clark Cabot Professor of Social Ethics in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University and the Queen of Implicit Bias Research. She's also the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Blind Spot, Hidden Biases of Good People, alongside Tony Greenwald, and the winner of countless awards, including being one of APA's William James Fellows for Outstanding Contributions to Psychology Research and a member of the National Academy of Sciences. Mazarin, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Thank you for having me, Adam. Thank you. When we first met in my first semester of grad school, you said something that I think is a story I'm going to repeat throughout the rest of my academic career. You said that what we do as social scientists is not rocket science, but it's harder because rocket scientists are dealing with physical things that can be measured in precise ways, and we have to design measures to capture things that we might not even know if they exist, or unconscious measures. Could you expand on that? The best way to expand on it is to use the words of a physicist, uh, the great polymath, uh, Murray Gell-Mann, who said it in a very pithy sentence. He said, just imagine if particles could think. Pan-psychism. Right. Pardon me? Pan-psychism. Pan but what he's saying is, look, it's complex enough without these particles being able to think. But imagine if they did and how complex our work would be. And we have millions of particles that think to deal with. So that is, in fact, um, what, what I mean. I mean in two ways. First of all, um, rocket science is... <laughs> Um, an, an outcome of a very old science, physics. Um, and so they've been at it for 2,000 years, so they've had a long history. Partly what's hard for what we, about what we do is that we're a much younger science. We're just coming up on sort of the first questions that need to be asked. Um, we've been around 100 years. Um, but the second way in which I mean it is the Gell-Mann uh, way, which is that when you have this black box, um, and it needs to be figured out without any direct access. Um, that just on the face of it is a whole lot harder. I just finished teaching um, my penultimate class this semester, and we talked about algorithmic bias in class. And one of the things that people say about algorithms, which is true, is that when they run amok and when they harm us, one of the problems, the source of the problem is that it is a black box. It's not transparent what the algorithm is. And so it's hard to know, you know, what it's doing and why it's doing it that way or what it's even doing. And then I thought to myself, but we constantly deal with another black box, and that's the human mind. But we often don't think about it that way. We say, oh my God, I don't know what this algorithm does. But I also don't know what my algorithm is doing. But we feel a lot more confident that we understand what our minds are doing, whereas this piece of software that we wrote that is using data from us that we have, we find that to be so complicated, right? So, so I think what, I'm, what I guess I'm trying to say is that black boxes are, in general, pretty hard. And, and, and we um, definitely occupy that part of the intellectual spectrum where we're dealing with a very special and a very complicated uh, black box. So even recognizing that we have this black box inside our minds, I'm thinking of the cognitive revolution of, I guess, from the 50s to 70s onwards, 
it was much more individual focused. So the idea of whatever the mind is that we're studying, it's something that is housed specifically within individuals and, and not necessarily taking into account the broader social, cultural context that shapes our mind that your research later gets to. How did you first get into psychology and bringing in this social, cultural perspective? And I imagine this was a newer area of research. It sure was when I went to college. Um, so when I went to college, um, I took some psychology, but the psychology I studied, and this was in South India, was um, mostly psychophysics. That was, um, you know, it, had, it was more advanced. We knew something about psychophysics. So that's what I studied. And I, and I, I guess I loved the method, but not enough that I thought I'm going to become a psychologist. So I strayed away for a little while and I went to fields like philosophy and even sociology. And I was in the process of doing that when on a trip home from um, school, uh, my train, this is a this is a distance of about a, over a thousand miles from New Delhi to where I lived in South India. And uh, being on an Indian train is uh, a whole uh, experience in and of itself. The train stops in big junctions and the, the platform is you know like a, like a city. There are people selling things and food and it's bustling around with lots of people. And I walked into a bookstore. Uh, on the platform that had sitting on the floor a pile of big fat red books and it said handbook of social psychology and I didn't know anything about that field and I looked at them and I asked the guy how much he was selling them for and he said roughly you know 10 shillings about a dollar a book and I said but look at all the dust that's collected on these surely you can sell them to me for less than that and I think you may have given me the whole set for a couple of bucks but I had with me now five volumes of the Handbook of Social Psychology. And on the train, um, before I got home, I had polished off the first volume. Um, and that volume mostly had many different theories of social psychology. I understood very little of what they were saying or why they were curious about what they seemed to be curious about. What grabbed me was a chapter on research methodology. And it was a chapter written by Elliot Aronson, a social psychologist, in which he is just describing some of the fundamentals of social psychology, the Lodium experiment and how that was done, the lab name Dolly experiment, and of course the dissonance studies, the first studies that have been done on cognitive dissonance. This was the 1968 handbook. Um, and I was, my jaw just dropped. I couldn't believe that there were people somewhere in the world who were studying social behavior, but not like any other group I had ever seen study social behavior. They were studying it experimentally. They were bringing it into a lab. They were doing remarkable things, like having people do boring tasks and then tell a lie about how interesting it was, and then paying them a dollar or $20 and showing these completely counterintuitive results that the people who had been paid a dollar were <laughs> more persuaded and, and um, uh, about how much they liked the task than the people who had been paid $20. None of this made any sense, but it made so much sense that this is how human nature might actually be. And it was this combination of wanting to understand the social world, but in kind of using the methods of experimental psychology 
that I found completely clean, and I just knew in that moment, in a way I think I have rarely ever had that kind of clarity. But I did in that moment just know this is what I want to do. But how do I do it? Where do I go? And that was that's a whole other story of how I then did get dragged to schools in the United States and arrived with a very large suitcase filled with five volumes of the Handbook of Social Psychology. And with one long-sleeved cotton shirt, because I'd been told it was cold in Ohio. Was it? <laughs> it, was, it was not cold in September, but in a couple of months, that cotton shirt uh, was, was worth nothing. <laughs> well, I know in modern social psychology research, you're starting to see some bridges through evolutionary psychology and even cross-species work on social cognition and making sense of like in-group, out-group biases that we have from an evolutionary perspective. Was any of that present in this early social psychology research that you mentioned? It was not. And I would say much to the detriment of social psychology. So I think in those days, the field was sort of carved up into people who were various kinds of psychologists. But even within the entire spectrum of psychology, I don't think that there were very many people who were interested or cared to connect to evolutionary theories. So cognitive psychologists certainly did not. Um, they, they, they assumed that there was a brain there that had evolved in a certain way. They were not going to deny that. But there wasn't an evolutionary account to understand perception or memory or whatever. And I don't think that's still, um, still, still the case. And then there were people who really took the nature-nurture divide in a very radical, literal way, and 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 felt that you had to argue at every given point about whether it was X or Y, and this came largely because of some of the horrors of the nature point of view. The nature point of view had indeed put out there many many theories of different race differences in IQ or gender differences in this way, and philosophers for a very long time had used those to support theories of the inferiority of particular groups over other groups. So the nurture people were responding to that. They saw that as evolutionary uh, psychology, and they didn't want any part of it. This was a huge mistake, because as we know today, uh, it, would be, it would be stupid to not think of the two as completely joined and intertwined, and that knowing the one has to inform the other, and there are no I, at least I don't perceive any threats from one point of view uh, to, to the other or for the other. So when I study bias, how can I not care about where it's coming from? How, how can I not care about our own evolutionary history and what my ancestors and yours would have had to deal with in a world very different than the world we live in today? And why some of the ways in which we think and feel, especially at this automatic level, um, does contain the vestiges of an older world in which the brain evolved. You're most well known for your work on automatic or implicit bias, which I'm excited to get to, but what happened in the meantime between graduate school and developing the implicit bias test, which was in the 90s, I think? Mm -hmm. That's correct, yeah. So around, you know, so, so, so when you, there's certain parts of our work that are very well known and are in the public eye, so people know those. But as with anything, the story is always more complicated. There were precursors. There were many people who had done lots of really beautiful work that came before our own, and we were simply standing on the shoulders um, of, of, of those guys. 
experience. So, so I, in graduate school, I became fascinated with one topic, and that was human genome. I was uh, interested in studying it. I happened to be in a social psychology program, but it was a very ecumenical program where you could do anything you wanted. And uh, I wandered over to the cognitive psychologist, my own mentor, Tom Greenwald, was sort of a hybrid in some ways. And so I was interested in memory, but not memory as in, you know, how many words can you remember from a list? Uh, memory as in what the more, you know, what social psychologists were thinking about at the time is how shall we think about the self was a question. Personality theorists think about the self in terms of traits and so on. But if you took a cognitive view of the self, then could we think about the self as a memory system, um, a way in which information that happens to be relevant to the self is encoded in some special way? And so I did my first piece of work on the self as a memory system. I became interested while doing that work in memory for emotional events. So again, that's not your typical bread and butter work that was being studied by cognitive psychologists. One of the things that I always say about social psychologists is that they always do what everybody else isn't doing. And so while the cognitive revolution for the cognitive psychologists was a very big deal, it wasn't for social psychologists because they were always doing cognitive psychology. They didn't care that there was a behaviorist revolution and that you were not supposed to study the mind. They just set those people aside and they did it. In fact, Leon um, Festinger's book, A Theory of Cognitive Dissonance, was written in the mid-50s at the height of behaviorism. But then the cognitive revolution happened. People came to their senses. And then they began to do cognitive psychology. So what did the social psychologists do? They said, well, nobody's studying emotion. <laughs> so they wandered off and they became quite interested. And I came in at that stage. And so I was very interested in the status of uh, emo emotional information of different kinds, differences in valence, differences in intensity, and its status in memory. You know, do we remember intensely positive and negative stuff equally well? Is there, is there a valence effect on top of it? So that was what my dissertation work was on. And then I went off to the University of Washington to do a postdoc um, with Beth Loftus, who was the queen of memory research, and Claude Steele, who was a social psychologist, and we looked at the effects of alcohol on memory. You know, what does drinking three drinks in 20 minutes do to memory? But also, what does it do to your self-concept and so on? So when I arrived at Yale, which was my first job, I was, I would say I was just pretty much a dilettante. I mean, I had, you know, done a little of this or that. I didn't come into to my assistant professorship the way our junior faculty today come into an assistant professorship. They come with a line of work that they've published that identifies what they're interested in. And they very quickly get to work to do more and more of it with amazing students like you. That's not what I was like at all. And there were others as well who were more like me than, than people today. So I wasn't completely unique. I may have just been a little bit more flaky than even others at the time in that I didn't come in with a, a particular point of view that I was gonna go there and do this. What was, what was on my side was that Yale did not have a tenure track. So uh, a few places, I did Yale among them, would hire junior faculty into a five-year contract, at least that's what it was at Yale at the time, that was renewable for another possible five years. 
So I knew coming in that I was not on tenure track, that I might stay at Yale for five years. And then if they liked what I was doing, they might give me another an extension for another five. So I always joked that I was not, you know, now it's not tenure, but it was 10 years. And that to me seemed just fine. 10 years um, with amazing colleagues and incredible students. Um, so I, of course, being interested in memory, would attend a, a weekly meeting called Memory Lunch, just like our brown bags. And um, this was mostly my colleague, Bob Crowder, who studied auditory cognition, and I, uh, and, and students who wanted to come. It was a journal club. We would read an article uh, that we thought was interesting, and we would uh, talk about it. And when it came my turn to present in one semester, I, I think I presented a study done by Larry Jacoby. And this was a study in which he'd shown that if you pull names out of a phone book, names like Sebastian Weisdorf, that if you've seen that name, you acquire certain a certain level of perceptual fluency for that name, Sebastian Weisdorf. Two days later, if somebody says, you know, hey, Sebastian Weisdorf, what, what, what did he do? You might think, oh, I remember that sounds familiar. Oh, isn't that Canadian hockey player or something like that? Right? You might. You might mischaracterize the person as being famous because you are under conditions of uncertainty in a Kahneman Tversky kind of way. And under those conditions of uncertainty, you can't tell, is this name feeling familiar to me because I saw it two days ago? Is it because of an episodic memory I have? Or is this person feeling familiar to me because the person is famous, is a, is a hockey player? And so, Larry had shown in his work that if a name has been seen before, and you and especially under conditions where you've forgotten it, your explicit memory for it is gone, implicit memory for that information will kick in and lead you to false alarm on those names and see them to be famous when in fact they're not. And so he called this effect the becoming famous overnight effect, and he had published this paper and I presented it. And I thought that since I was interested in memory and of course all around me, people like Dan Schachter, people like Larry Jacoby, people like Bobby Rodiger, the hot thing happening in, in, in research on memory was the discovery of this new form of memory called implicit memory. And so I decided to replicate that study, but I asked Larry for the stimuli and he sent them to me. And uh, as I joke, I said, wrote back to him and said, you've only sent me half your stimuli because there are only male names in this list. And, and we and I chatted and he said, well, you know, it was very hard to find famous women. And it was, and it was 1988. And so I, I, I didn't challenge that. And this is another something that, that students should know that in 1998, if somebody said to you, I didn't use both kinds of names because women aren't famous. That was a completely reasonable thing to say uh, for an experiment in psychology. Why, why would you have to include all kinds of names? Pick the ones where you know that they'll all be the same and that have reached some level of fame that is, 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 is present, and then do your experiment on that. Do you see the same even in historical animal research? I've been doing work with Leah on brain development and puberty and hormones, and a lot of the classic research on this comes from rodent studies. It's and it's all typical. Male. Yeah, all male, exactly. There's a paper I think that was written called Even the White Rat <laughs> was male <laughs> and white. Um, so it seemed completely normal. And, you know, think about the rodent experiments you mentioned. It is a hassle. You have female rodents. They're going to menstruate. Mm -hmm. 
it's going to wreck your study. You got to pull them out and put some other, it'll slow it down. So yes, you can understand that for many reasons, but if this happens over and over again, then we understand the psychology of one kind of grief and not another. But I just want to be honest and say, when I came upon this idea of this work, I did not feel any pressure to include all kinds of things. However, and this I hope is also interesting to your listeners, I don't know why, and I cannot tell you that I know why even today, why I spent an entire summer trying to find names of famous men and women. But I just felt that if I was going to replicate the study, I should include them. Not because I thought what Larry had done was wrong. Not because I thought that I couldn't go off and just do the same thing. But something in me just made me do this. And I have to assume that it had to do with my being female. That had I been a man, I would have most likely done exactly what um, was needed to be done. Replicate the study. And then take it from there. Anyway, so uh, long story short, I do the study with both male and female names, totally expecting that both names are going to become famous overnight if they've been heard before, but not if they were names that you hadn't seen before. And we got the old name back, but on top of that, um, there was a substantial gender difference. Male names did become famous overnight. In some experiments, female names also became famous overnight, but not nearly as much. And in some other studies, they barely got off the ground. They did not become famous overnight. And that was just stunning to me. So after the first couple of experiments, I began to quiz my subjects. I would say, what do you think affected this, your performance? Did you find some names feeling like you should identify them as famous? And they would say, oh, yes. You know, if I'd seen a name before, I felt like maybe I was getting screwed up a little bit. So they figured out the implicit memory hypothesis. They knew that they might be making mistakes on names they'd seen before. So then I would say, what about the gender of the name? I didn't use the gender of the name in this. And so there was this, this contrast between a complete lack of introspective access to what they were doing, which is to selectively identify male names to be famous, but not equally familiar female names, and a complete lack, a complete lack of that awareness, and yet, there it is in their behavior. So I think that's another moment in which I think I made a good decision. Uh, everybody said to me, keep doing your work on memory because you've invested in it, you know something about it, this is a very interesting area, it will give you some work. And I just thought, no, that's, that's not what's most interesting. Yes, implicit memory is great and many people are working on it. But how could these people, how could they not know that they were doing this. And by this, I knew that that little circling of a name as famous or not famous, I just knew that if they can do that, they could do the same for names of criminals. Who seems to you to be more likely to be a criminal? They did some studies on that. Um, and then I knew that if this is true, if people are doing this and they're not aware, then objectively they're even less up in the air all questions of, did you intend to harm or did you not intend to harm? Of course, there was no intent on any on the part of any of these subjects to harm women. But in a sense, that's what they were doing. They were not selecting them in the same way. And you mentioned at the time, and maybe in the present day, there are just more famous men. So now, standing on the shoulders of giants, I can't help but think of this in Bayesian terms, which is to say, we have a predictive model of the world, and we, throughout our lifetimes, acquire 
prior information. So that becomes our starting place. And one prior you might acquire throughout your lifetime is there are just more famous men. So you re you come across a random male name that you're slightly familiar with and a random female name. And you don't know where either of them are from, but you think there are more famous men out there. So that could lead to this gender difference that you're describing. Absolutely. So that's how I explained it at the time. No motivation to harm anybody. That's your third Bayesian that is set up for you, and it is pretty. Let me give you an example of a study that I think will fit in your mind. Uh, but you'll see how interesting this is. This is a study I did with a student of mine who's no longer uh, in the lab or in the field. He works for Facebook, but Jack Chow. And what Jack and I did is to tell people that here's a scenario that we tell others. We tell them um, somebody performs surgery. A person could either be male or female. Uh, who's, who's likely to have performed this surgery, the man or the woman? And we tell them that when we tell people this, there are some people who say, of course, it's the male. What do you think of this person? And our subjects would get really upset about such a person. They would say, the person you know, is a sexist, and they write paragraphs of just, just pure vitriol about who are these horrible people who are saying that the man is the surgeon? Of course, equally relevant. And then in other studies, we give people the actual problem to solve, and they're very evasive. So this paper is titled something like, People Find Reprehensible Certain Behaviors That They Demonstrate Themselves. So they're being decent Bayesians. Uh, they are using gender to some extent in making that judgment because all things being equal, your priors, um, who a surgeon is likely to be, should enter, you might control for it to some extent, but unless the world gives you evidence to the contrary, you know, it's certainly accurate in that moment to say that. But here we are in a moral universe where we think that saying that is a horrible thing, right? Mm -hmm. So so there is a sort but the but that is interesting because normatively speaking, it is interesting, right? So these days, what, what, what I find fascinating is, for example, if we have a word or a phrase in Turkish, uh, which is gen has gender-neutral pronouns. So, obir doctor means this person is a doctor. Obir hemşire, this person is a nurse. Right? When Google translates that from Turkish into English, Google translates it as he is a doctor, she is a nurse. Because Google is doing exactly what you were saying. It has looked at the number of times male and surgeon and female and doctor and female and nurse have been associated, and it's picking what is the most common pronoun. Mm -hmm. But we could have a long discussion, you and I, about whether that's correct in our world to do. In one sense, it's completely correct. It's picking the most likely gender group for each. But now you and I, I think, would both agree that if Google is doing this, it is adding into the universe of information an additional identification of male with doctor and female with surgeon that is not true. It's just making it up there, right? And doing right. It. So another example of algorithmic bias. Another example of algorithmic bias. And so Google went in and fixed it. So now if you go do it, it will say he slash she is a doctor. She slash he is a nurse. Yes, it still orders it. In it order still orders it, but it's telling you it need not be only one or the other, which I think is a great 
waiting to solve it. My only worry is that we can't wait around for Google to listen to, you know, the chatter on Twitter and then go change it for that particular profession. This needs to get um, generalized enough that we see it for teacher and secretary and nurse and astronaut and engineer and everything. So at the time, was this formalized computationally as what people are doing when thinking about social cognition and memory or thinking about stereotypes that it is in this Asian framework of you have these biases, but maybe they are reflecting some statistical reality of just what you've been exposed to throughout your lifetime? It's a very good question, Adam, because I can tell you that there are some of us who were not using those words, but we were saying that. And then there were others who were up in arms about that because they thought what we were saying is that we were endorsing stereotyping. And we were saying the two are separate. One is to understand how the mind works. Then the other is to say what kind of universe do we want to live in and how do we want to shape the kind of universe we want to be in. But that the one, the latter, should not inhibit the former. Inhibit with the former, mm -hmm. right? And that was, that was a huge um, challenge. I remember students in, in my social cognition graduate seminar just arguing and arguing with me on, on, on these particular issues. But it seemed right to me. It seemed right to me to say that stereotypes, you know, I think they think the word stereotype means something bad, but it doesn't. Right? We have today we understand that stereotypes in the but the word bias, I define it in a very neutral way. It doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. I do have a bias that favors the Red Sox massively over the Yankees. Uh, I think it's a pretty fun bias and one I'm not about to change. I, in fact, may want to strengthen it. Probably my team would play a little bit better. But that's that's an example right, of something where I feel that it's quite random. And, and, and I can even morally justify it. You know, the, Red, the, the Yankees dominate in, in baseball. Uh, there, there are as many crazy Yankee fans as there are Red Sox fans. We're equal in society at some level. My preference for this group is not producing any harm. And, and so on. Um, my IOT and many people's shows a preference for um, green leafy vegetables over red meat. If I have such an implicit bias, I think that's a very fine bias. It's going to make me healthy. Um, so their bias itself is not good or bad. It has to do with question number one, how deviant is it from reality, from accuracy? If there are two candidates in front of me uh, and the dark-skinned candidate is more competent than the light-skinned candidate in that context, and I pick the light-skinned one, that's a bias. That's a bias that shows a deviation from accuracy in some way. And then we want to worry about it. Or it may not be a deviation from accuracy because in many cases the decision is subjective. It's not about accuracy. It's just how much do you like red versus blue? You know, I can like, like one and you can like the other. But let's say I want to like red, but my behavior shows a deviation in the direction of blue. Then again, it's a bias of an interesting sort because it's a deviation from what my espoused values are. I want to be an egalitarian. My behavior shows otherwise. Now I need to worry about it because it's a deviation from my values. In Blind Spot, you talk about these things called mind bugs, which is an interesting term because, on one hand, it's something that we've evolved, it's just built into our minds, and we can't help but have these biases in our thinking. But on the other hand, 
people have this implicit association of bug is bad, and sometimes they are very harmful mind bugs. Mm -hmm. So that's why you know we 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 use it in the sense in yes in the sense in which I think the original use of it was children showing mind bugs, and when they had to learn subtraction, they couldn't figure out the carrying over problem, and they would make these systematic errors when they were learning subtraction. There would be this little hump that they had to get over, all of us, I guess, did. And and the author had used the term mind bugs to, to capture that. And I just borrowed it because I loved it. For a long time, I gave talks with that title. And yes, you're right. It is indeed that, that when you call it a mind bug, you're saying there's something buggy in your software. It's causing a kind of a hiccup or even the program to stall altogether. Wouldn't we want to know what those are? so that we can do it better. And implicit bias is one such example of a mind bug, but as we mentioned, it doesn't necessarily have to be bias in the negative way we normally talk about it. It can be a bias in your training data throughout the lifespan. So if you're raised in America or a predominantly white culture and you have a bias towards whites, whether that's just familiarity-based, um, you, you're going to Maybe we should outline what the implicit bias test is yeah, doing before, before getting into question. this. So listeners can check it out at Project Implicit online, uh, and we can take it from there. Right. So in 1994, uh, Kennedy Ward and I had a grant, and the grant, the grant was written with the purpose of following up on some of the false fame work, but also. The grant proposal said we would like to try to build a method that will produce evidence of bias in a, what do we say, kind of intelligent start or truer way. So there had been methods before that. You, you, you must know this method called sequential priming. Um, if you want to look at the semantic connection between two words, it's very easy to find it by showing that when you flash the word king, followed very quickly by the word queen, and your job is to decide is queen a word or not a word, you'll be much more likely to say queen is a word um, correctly when it's preceded by king rather than something irrelevant like cloud. So cloud and queen will not lead to a faster response on queen in the same way as king and queen will lead to a faster response on queen. And that faster response to queen is giving you a little indication of the strength of association between your control condition is cloud and queen. A difference in that response rate across those two sets of primes and targets is telling you these two are more connected, those two are less connected. So those methods did exist. I had used many of them. In fact, I had begun to study with my very first graduate student, Curtis Hardin. We had looked at words because when I was at Yale, people were talking about words like, why can't we just call all, all people who are chairs of departments chairman? It's true, women are now starting to be chairman, but why can't we just call them chairman? Like, what's the big deal? We need we have to call them chairwoman. That just sounded to people really strange. And some of us would make, you know, arguments like, there are so many words for which we, you know, how weird would it be if we said chair white? We don't do that. So why do we feel like chair has to be chairman? And they were, you know, we could have these endless conversations. And undergraduate students would be up in a tizzy if I said, you know, please write the, you know, gender neutral language. So, so that was the fight. 
on campuses. And so we said, let's do studies. And we did sequential priming studies in which you would see words like John followed by chairman or Jane followed by chairman or vice versa, chairman and then John or chairman and then Jane. And we would look at the speed of responding and we showed that all of these words, if just the word contains a male morphine, <laughs> it is going to get faster responses to it. So the methods did exist. That's what I want to say. But the effects on these kinds of methods, because they were theoretical in first month, we need to understand what's happening right now, what semantic phenomena does. The, the effect sizes would be on the order of, you know, the, the, the differences in reaction time would be on the order of eight and 10 uh, milliseconds. Now, they would be highly reliable, but you'd have to run 80, 80 people, each of whom gave you data on five to 800 trials. So for an hour, you would be doing this. And then out of it, you could say, the patterns of data were always there, and they were always beautiful in the order in which you would predict. But the effects of time. And so I think what, what bothered Tony Greenwald more than even me was, can't we find a method that might produce larger effects? And in 1994, um, the IAT was actually sent to me by Andy who put the program together, and he just said, try this. And in this little experiment, I had to, I, I, we used to send this to each other a lot. So we were used to receiving you know, little programs that we could run because I always say that we were very lucky because in, in very few parts of science can an experimenter be a subject in her own experiment, right? If you're a physicist, you cannot be the particle. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. In many parts of our science, if people are designing surveys or even beautiful analogical reasoning problems or Bayesian problems that we're giving people to solve, you can't be a subject in that study because you know what the hypothesis is. This is like a tiny little piece of research where you can be a subject in your own study in very much the same way as somebody who studies vision could be a subject of their own optical illusion uh, study. Right? Um, and so I took this test that required me to associate black and white with good and bad words, and I just, I knew what I would show. I could do this easily. I've been studying bias now for a few years, and I did it. And I, I could not I could not associate black with good as quickly as I could associate white with good. And my first thought, Colin, was the test is screwed up. Something's wrong with the test. It must have given. So I'm very understanding even today when people's first reaction to taking the IAT is that can't be true something's wrong with the test I, I understand it completely I, I did the same thing but I knew every line of that code I knew what that program was doing and so very quickly I realized you know the test is not screwed up it's my head that screwed up <laughs> and I have to understand how to make sense of this, first with the king and queen example, I was thinking of an, an analogy of what your mind is doing. Imagine your mind and all your knowledge is just a vast library, and you have different shelves, and there there are different categories. So, like king and queen are gonna be in the same like monarch category. So you go to the same bookshelf, and you're gonna be faster at linking those two together because you don't have to travel across the library. And that makes sense when you're thinking about semantic categories. But then when you get to something like an implicit bias of white equals good, black equals bad, it, 
that analogy starts to fall apart. It doesn't fall apart. The analogy still holds, but our minds are not going to be as open to that. Because just as king and queen have been shelved together, white and good things have been shelved together for centuries. So the and so I, I do think that when people have trouble with it, or, or take something like, uh, you know, forget the good and bad, which is more sub, you know, the, the, so, so there were studies, by the way, I should say for the nerds who are listening, just as there have been studies of semantic priming, king priming queen, uh, chairman priming John, more so than Jane, there was a group of people who had said, what if two words are semantically completely unrelated to each other, but they have something affectively in common. So a word like proud and priest, they have nothing in common semantically, but if they share, if they sit somewhere similarly on an evaluative spectrum, but let's take a very clear example, ice cream and honest. Ice cream is good, honest is good. They have nothing to do with each other. Can one prime the other? And Vespasio and John Bartichon, yes, they can. That's a very well established, they call this automatic attitudes. So even before we came in, people had done this work. What we were doing was not new other than that we had a method that slapped you in the face in a way in which these priming methods that existed did not. But even, even affective priming had been demonstrated. So now, white and good, they may be semantically associated, but they were obviously affectively associated because they sat on the same emotion shelf. Uh, in the library, and so did black and bad, and now we know when we look at large language corpora that what we see on the IAT data, data that come from individual human minds measured in milliseconds, can be seen almost exactly in the same way to exist in our language if we use something um, like cosine similarity to measure you know, the, the angle between mother and kitchen, or white and good, and then black and good, and so closer the angle, the smaller, the further apart the angle, the wider. And computer scientists like Arlene Callison took the IAT data and then showed that if we go into the common crawl, the language of the internet, grabbed at two different moments in time, 850 billion words, and you uh, look at those trained databases by looking at how close those white and good words are to each other and black and good words are, you'll see exactly what we see in humans in the and even among people like yourself, or hopefully everyone who's listening, where there's no such conscious bias, and if anything, a conscious desire not to have the bias, you still see the strong effect, and it seems to be a result of just all of this statistical learning about everything you see in media and throughout history, and just this association that is instantiated in our culture. I would say you're absolutely correct. Um, I would even go a little bit further and say that that is if there's one result that we want to pull out and say in the last 50 years we've been at this, this is the one most important thing that we've learned about implicit bias. I would say that that signature result is a disparity between what we consciously espouse, what we value, what we think we are, and then on the other hand, what we actually are, which is what we see on the implicit measures, which is another side of ourselves. I'm not going to argue that the implicit side is more important than the explicit, 
or vice versa. But I will say that the two often crumble together. And to me, that's incredibly interesting. People often ask me why I don't study people with explicit bias. And I say I find them psychologically uninteresting because they tell me that they hate A over B, their test result likely shows that they hate A over B. What's there to talk about? It's people like us, people of good values who say, I am egalitarian, I'm fair, I don't care about what a person looks like. I've heard this so many times. It began in, I think, the 1980s. I don't care if a candidate is pink, blue, red, or purple. I just want talent. Those are the people to whom I want to speak and say, you may want that, but it turns out that you like the purples more than the others. You just didn't know that. Mm -hmm. And this is where the research can get misinterpreted or maybe becomes controversial because of those misinterpretations. I want to ask you whether it is genuinely that we have this implicit bias in the sense of you unconsciously like one thing more than the other versus you're just more familiar with it and that leads to faster reaction time, but there's no normative judgment there whatsoever. So that's a very fine question, and one of the things we should we start to do when that happens is to actually try to look at is it is the IoT detecting nothing but familiarity with bugs? And it's a very good question. And I certainly even today believe that it has the roots of familiarity. And if you're a developmentalist, you would understand this very quickly because babies show those roots of liking things that are familiar in a most pristine way. So familiarity is definitely involved in this. I would argue that that familiarity has sitting on top of it and covering all of it a certain preference. Right? Something that actually discriminates and says, I want this more than that. I like this more than that. I believe this is smarter than that. This is you know, better than that. And so we'll come to that. But if you're a child, I mean, one of my favorite studies was done um, by a student in Ms. Belke's lab, Sally Ziv. Uh, she did a study, I think this was with six-month-olds, looking at Ethiopian Jews in Ethiopia and showing that six-month-old Ethiopian Jews, uh, Jewish babies, prefer dark-skinned people to light-skinned people. That's what they're familiar with. Right? Um, then she does the study with Ashkenazi Jews in Israel and shows the exact opposite symmetric result that Ashkenazi Jewish babies prefer light-skinned people to dark-skinned people. And then she looked at Ethiopian Jews who had moved from Ethiopia to Israel and had caregivers of both skin tones and showed that they had no bias at all. To me, this is a perfect like, study that shows us very clearly what the effects of familiarity are. And when we say babies have a preference, we're not saying anything more than that the baby is looking more at one over the other, is finding one. We can lay on top of that the baby likes the light skin, but I don't think we should. I think we should stay away from that. We should say they seem to like the kind of people who they have gotten used to. But if that's the case, then we should always like the familiar more, and African Americans don't say that. They just don't. So, so uh, let's finish up the familiarity bit just a little bit because I think that there's more to it than familiarity because, you know, we see that certain dominance in, in a certain culture is preferred. So wherever we find strong implicit preference, it seems to be in people who are dominant in their society. So white Americans show strong white preference. 
black American history for almost 30 years now. And it's not just black Americans, they've seen this in black America, they know in South Africa, they know in South Africa. So, so we know that it can't be just But the second way in which we know it's not just from that error is because of the data that have come out of other people's labs today, not my own, where they do something fascinating. Because our data are huge, and because we put them in a publicly accessible place, anybody, an economist colleague of mine, Rob Chetty, did this. He took the IoT data that we have archived there, organized it by county, and took the average IoT score for each county. Okay, maybe he did it by state, but let's say county or state, some region. He's not interested in everything. He's interested in upward mobility. He gets his hotel money from the Paris state. And sadly, in the United States, many people no longer make more money than their parents did. Because he talks about that as sort of failure of the American dream. But certainly some people more so than others. And what Raj found is that the degree of race bias regionally, county by county or state by state, predicts the difference in black and white mobility. Okay, so in states where IAP bias is high, are those states where black people are much less upwardly mobile compared to white people versus the states where it's the opposite. Now, that's harder to explain than just blame. Okay, there's something in the air. And there are now dozens, of, more than dozens of studies. I think I gave you one today, maybe one more today, I'm not sure about them, where the degree of bias in a region, higher, the higher the race bias in a region, the greater the lethal use of force by police greater the IoT race bias in the region, the greater the race difference in maternal health, infant health, etc. The greater the race bias, the greater the differences in school discipline, different kinds of race bias. So these correlations are telling us that something is now it's a correlation. I don't I would never say implicit bias is causing these, nor would I say that those causes of just racial disparities are causing the IoT. They're probably interconnected in some way, most likely there's something, a third variable in there that's causing the both. And that could be what many psychologists today say is sort of a box of clouds that uh, there's something in the air you know, that, has, that has lasted over a long period of time. Each one would say what happened in 1960 uh, predicts what we will see in the next two or at least it's familiarity with the fact that some areas are more racist than others and we'll be exposed to that if that lens is not expressed as well. Yes, yes, I would say yes, but it's not like I like, I only like what's familiar. I think that that's, that's uh, that because, you know, because if anything, so here's another result that would contradict, I think that we'll, I haven't brought this here fully, but counter to our intuition, areas that are racially more diverse show more anti-blackness. In other words, you're seeing more of that. Areas where there are more black people show greater anti-blackness. And that's often with what you see with the babies, where if they're exactly. exposed to it, they yeah, don't they're have blue blue. Exactly. So it depends in what context are you seeing it. You know, being overweight is not a positive thing in the culture. And so when you see more of that, it generates greater sensitivity. So it's not just familiarity. It has to do with familiarity being the roots of this, this anti-blackness. Rob Chetty's work taking the IoT data and combining it with geographic data is a great example of 
ways that, that this person can extend the time. I know more recently you've been doing natural language processing research. Do you have anything to say about and talk about that? Sure. Um, I, I, I mentioned the work of Eileen Hellstrom, this computer scientist. When she was a postdoc, she just did the study in which you looked at you know, the, the database that you create called the Common Crawl and showed that in that database of 852 billion words, you see patterns um, that are very similar to what, what the IoT had shown. And she came up with a new measure that she calls the, 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 the WEAT, uh, the Word Embeddings Association Test, as a parallel to the IoT. Uh, so you can now put those together. I thought that study was fascinating. And uh, a student of mine, Tessa Charlesworth, was doing early in her career, she had done a couple of studies with young children um, in, in the, the Children's Museum here in Boston. And I had heard this many, many times in the developmental work that I'd done um, with students in a previous decade, where parents would say to us, I don't understand why my children are getting these biases from me. We never say anything like this in the house. They would never say, you know, if you're a girl, you can't do this or that. Where is this stuff coming from? And we would try to say to them, well, first of all, you're not the only influence from your child. And even you may say certain things that might actually be the building blocks of, this, of these stereotypes. And they would not be happy to hear that and because parents try really, really hard. This is back to the issue you and I spoke about earlier. The intent is good. And, and and certainly these Boston Cambridge parents were really trying hard to make sure that their children did not have any of these biases. So Tessa got a data set, or a child's data set, C-Y-L-D-E-S, uh, which consists of parent-child conversations. And she looked at that data set, she looked at TV shows, she looked at um, uh, stories that we tell children, and did a very similar analysis to see if gender stereotypes exist in this language, especially the parent-child conversations. And these conversations are alive for parents. It's just the parents aren't aware of it. And you see why a parent might hold a view, we are not being sexist, how is our child learning this, while also every day saying things like, where's mommy? Mommy's in the kitchen. <laughs> where's daddy? Daddy's at work. Well, that's the basis. That's what our test looks at. That was the first study that we did. And now there are dozens and dozens more. Yasmin, you're smiling as you talk about this. And it, for, for someone who's new to it, it's a bit, it seems scary. It's a bit pessimistic, right? What, what is the optimistic take we can take away from this research? So I had been led by the data to be a complete and utter pessimist about what we should expect. Um, I guess I'm smiling because in recent years, my students have done research to suggest that things may not be as bad as we think they are, right? Or rather, things are bad, but that they can improve. Uh, and they come in two kinds of categories. Um, research by Benedict Purdy has been showing that yes, we learn very rapidly who's the good one and who's the bad one, but by giving people causal explanations for why bad may have been bad, you can flip it around which is kind of shocking to be stunning. I would never have thought that whatever constitutes implicit cognition is sensitive to these kinds of propositional inputs uh, that can make us change an association that we've learned and flip it 
to be something quite opposite of it. So that gives me some optimism. And Tessa has done research that shows that if we look at the IUT over time, from 2007 to today, what we are seeing is that certain kinds of biases are dropping at extreme rates. So anti-gay bias has come down by 64%. I'll let your you know, listeners and viewers uh, think about why that is the case. Okay. What about race bias? It turns out, yes, race bias too has come down, but not nearly at the same level. So by about 25%. There are some biases that have changed similarly. Gender bias, uh, where we associate female with home and male with career. <coughs> that bias has come down. A bias associating male with science and female with arts. That's come down by 25%. But we can ask the question, why 25% and not 64? What is it about anti-gay bias that has allowed it to come down so fast? And across all groups of people, conservatives and liberals and the posts in the middle of the country and rich and poor and educated and less educated. Yes, she shows that two groups in our culture are changing faster than other groups. And there are people who are young and people who are self-professed liberals. For those two groups, they've actually already reached new thriving through um, anti-gay bias testing, sexuality tests, whatever. And so we're seeing this. There are some biases that are not changing. We have some really stuck and anti-elderly bias is very difficult to remove, it seems. It's not been changing. Um, disability bias, not changing, maybe by 2% or something like that. And anti-overweight uh, bias, so here, that bias is not changing. So we can then talk in our labs about why. Why are some not changing at all? Others are changing somewhat and still others are changing really rapidly. And I think if we can figure this out and model it, we might be on our way to avoiding what we might be avoiding as liberals. And then those last three that you mentioned seem to have some health in common. So it, it, it does seem like there's something more factual about it. Whereas there other is. things like race or um, mm -hmm. sexuality, it, it's mm -hmm. become harder and harder to make any case for why this would be negative. Yeah, and, uh, and, uh, and media has done a lot. So, you know, I worry a little bit that the race bias uh, improvement may simply be from the health, health so from the fiance effect. So there are a few very, very salient African Americans in our culture in the areas of music, entertainment, um, sports, who may be playing a disproportionate role in making that bias drop away. But as a result, we shouldn't assume that the average black person on the street is going to be treated any differently, even though the IOT is sort of picking up something that is shifting in people's minds. Uh, and sexuality, I think, is Hollywood for all of those. I think it really is just put on television day after day individuals who were gay, who were smarter and cooler and nicer than straight people, and grandmothers and grandfathers cheated. Uh, so um, I, I, I worry about that. That's a great, cautiously optimistic note to end on. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me, Adam. Thank you for doing this. I, 